Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this new day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you, Father, for rest last night. Thank you for a day to be together uh, today to, um, to open your word together and to explore your word in the context of, of ancient Israel and the ancient Near East. Send us your spirit, Lord, uh, to illumine our minds and our hearts that we might rightly understand your scriptures and by understanding them rightly that we might know you rightly. And yet saying that, Lord, is, as much as we do long to know you, we long even more to be known by you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would come into this place and that you would fill our hearts, fill our minds, fill this, this space with you. Be present with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so uh, I'd like to just pick up more or less where I left off last evening. Uh, so you'll recall that at the end of my talk last night, I, I tried to raise the question of what is archaeology good for? And I proposed that it's good for three things. Do you recall what they were? Context. Clarification is the third one. And the second one is confirmation. So I'm going to go in that order today. So this first talk, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the context of the Bible. And then in my second talk, which I think is 11, okay, so at 11 o'clock, uh, I want to talk about um, just one way that uh, we can see that the, the archaeological and uh, non-biblical textual records uh, do seem to corroborate uh, what the Bible claims uh, in, in a handful of different ways. Uh, so I, for that, I want to look at the history of the Philistines. So that'll be the second talk. And then the third talk this evening, which I think is at 7 o'clock, uh, I'll, um, I'll try to unpack what I mean by how uh, archaeology clarifies. It sheds uh, light on um, a biblical text in a way that I think helps us to read it um, uh, a bit more within its original setting and with a bit uh, more mindfulness about what the original author was trying to do with that text. So for that, I want to look at, uh, at a psalm. So the second uh, session today, as I mentioned, is on daily life in ancient Israel. Okay, just like basic cultural context kinds of things. Uh, I have, God help us, 59 slides. <laughs> okay, we may or may not get to all of them, and that's okay. In some, some cases, I'm going to go just pretty rapid fire. She's taking my picture, and I feel like I should put this coffee down. It'll look a little more professional. Right, there we go. Uh, some of them I'll just go very rapid fire through them. I don't need to say a lot, you know, when I show you some, I don't know, sling stones or whatever. There's not too much to say about a round rock that you throw at somebody. But, um, uh, but Lord willing, we'll get through it. And if I need to cut some stuff off at the end, we can just kind of tack it on to the beginning and that'll be fine. But I'd like to begin this morning by, uh, with a really, really, really big picture. Uh, inviting you to think uh, for just a minute about where ancient Israel is within the broader ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, so you, you know, right, that right here is Jerusalem. And so modern-day Israel, that ancient Israel, was basically right here, okay? It's a country about the size of New Jersey. You can go north to south in about six hours, and that's from all the way to the north, all the way down to the south to Elab, which is right there, in about six hours, okay? By comparison, it took me three to get over here yesterday, so you figure just times that by two. That's not a very long drive. Uh, and then from end to end, or from, from west to east, it goes from the Mediterranean coast over to the Jordan River, which is right here, maybe an hour and a half or two hours uh, in, in modern times by car. So it's a very, very small patch of land, okay? What do you notice about it when I uh, show it to you in this, uh, on this map? The thing that you should see 
is that the land of Israel is right in the middle of it all. Okay? It's right in the middle of it all. And in some ways, it kind of still is, right? I mean, if, it seems like, you know, if you read the New York Times or the Washington Post or what have you, it seems like if a pen drops in Jerusalem, we still hear about it. Uh, because it is, in so many ways, kind of the center of the world. That was definitely the case in the ancient world, okay? Just consider the way in which it's surrounded by all of these great civilizations. Down here to the southwest, it's bordered by Egypt, okay? To the northwest, it's bordered by the great Hittite kingdoms up here in modern-day Turkey. To the east, it's bordered by Assyria over here and Babylonia over here. It's locked in to the east by the Arabian Desert. Anybody in Egypt that wants to do anything with anybody else in uh, Hattiland, right, where the Hittites are, anybody in Egypt that wants to do business with the Mesopotamians, how do they get there? Through the coastal highway, right? It's literally right in the middle of the known world, okay? Now, you can imagine how that might set up a series of blessings and curses, I want you to think in this context, I don't know if you have a Bible on hand, but if you were to open up your Bible and you were to look at a text like Deuteronomy 27 and Deuteronomy 28, okay? these, uh, these texts here at the end of the Deuteronomic uh, covenant, uh, Moses is saying, if you're faithful, here's all these blessings that are going to come upon you. If you're unfaithful to this covenant, here are all these curses that are going to come upon you, right? You're going to be devastated by your enemies, you're gonna, or you won't be, or you're going to be uh, hungry because there's going to be famine and, no, and, and a drought, or there won't be if you're faithful. All of that plays out right here in what I like to call the land between. Israel is so precisely um, located, and I, I have to think that God knew what he was doing here, that he put these people right here because he wanted to put them in the crucible of faith. Do you see what I'm saying? With fidelity to God, they have all kinds of opportunity to reap all kinds of blessings by patrolling these routes and being at the center of the world in this, in this, uh, in this place where there's so many crossroads. Everybody's trying to get through here so you can do business or, or attack or whatever else somebody else. At the same time, they are utterly surrounded by their enemies. Okay? And so we know, in fact, I'll talk about this a little bit more in my, in my third talk this afternoon. We know that throughout the ancient, um, throughout ancient history, Egypt was always trying to encroach through the Sinai Peninsula up into this neck of the woods. Because they wanted to control these ports, they wanted to control these roads, they wanted to control uh, access to the very fertile grain fields up here, and the olive groves, and uh, the cedars, and all these kinds of things. There's just a lot of resources here that people desire, particularly the Egyptians. Likewise, if you think about uh, the great destructions of the Iron Age too, say the, the destructions of the Assyrians when they come in and they destroy the kingdom of Israel and they exile them back to Assyria, or hundred and some odd years later when the Babylonians come in and they exile them to Babylon, they're coming up through the fertile crest here along the Euphrates River and they come down from the north and uh, walk along the coastal highway until they get to the land of Israel. And so this is why the biblical text talks about destruction coming in from the north, right? Whereas why uh, in, the, in the language about Jesus, uh, well, it's originally applied to Hezekiah, but it's re, uh, reapplied to Jesus. He talks about how a great light has shined in the north, right? It's because these people up here in Galilee live in the shadow of darkness, Right, under, this, uh, under these imperial powers that march in from the north and destroy them. My point in all of this is that Israel, the land of Israel, is a crucible of faith. Right? And this is the setting for a text like Deuteronomy. If you're faithful, God will protect you. 
He will enrich you. He will provide for you. He will, uh, he will give you all of these resources that come with being in the center of the world. And on the other hand, if you're not faithful, then you're going to bear the curses of that because you are squarely in the middle of the world and everybody else wants your land. Okay. Crucible for faith. Here's slightly more uh, a close-up of the land of Canaan or the land of Israel. I mentioned last night that I excavated for many years the city of Ashkelon. There it is right there. Gaza is just to the south. Gaza was an ancient Philistine city, by the way. It's, not, it's just only a modern city. Uh, so this is what I'm going to try to focus on today, right? Just daily life in, in ancient Israel. Um, but before I move on, notice the coloring of this map, okay? Notice the way in which... Um, we, we have almost three basic zones as you go from west to east in, the ancient, uh, in ancient Israel. You have what we call the coastal plain, very green, usually quite fertile, uh, gets a lot of rain, gets a nice sea breeze, and the dew comes in from the breeze. And so uh, this area is very, very uh, productive for things like grains to this day. People grow a lot of wheat and barley and those kinds of things. Uh, some, some vineyards down in this area in the south. As you move to the east just a little bit, you go into the the biblical word for this is the Shephelah, which just means like the low-lying hills. Okay. Um, it's not totally unlike what we're in here, right? Uh, and then as you go a little bit uh, farther to the east, you have this more mountainous area, the, the hill country. And this uh, brown spot here through the middle uh, is really the, the backbone of, ancient, of the ancient Israelite and Judahite kingdoms. Okay? They, were, they were hill people, okay? kind of like West Virginians. Right? They, were, they lived in the hills and the hollers of... Uh, what we call the, the Central Highlands. Okay. Um, not an easy place to live. Okay, You're surrounded by very rocky soil. Um, notice also that it's brown. Okay, very, very, very dependent upon seasonal rains. Okay, so that, that plays a big role in um, in the biblical text. You think about the droughts and the days of people like Elijah, right? Where uh, God basically says, because of the infidelity of Israel, I'm going to withhold rain for a number of years. Um, and that was, uh, that was part of life in the ancient world. Rain wasn't a guarantee, especially if you lived up in this uh, central highland area. Moving into archaeology just a little bit more specifically. So as I mentioned, places like Ashkelon and Ashdod and all that, and these Lachish, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. Samaria with the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the same things about Megiddo and Tana, Bashan, just a minute. Here's what they look like in the modern era. There's Bashan. Okay. Not in view is a very large modern city, and I, I'm not kidding. This is the hottest place in the world. It's just miserable. If you ever get a chance to go there, maybe give it 10 minutes and then go find the air conditioning. It's just way down inside the Jordan Valley, so it's well below sea level, and it's just totally miserable. But notice what you see here in the, in the center part of the screen. You, you screen. You see this giant mound. Okay, it's called a tell, T-E-L, or sometimes T-E-L-L, depending on whether you're using the Arabic or the Hebrew pronunciation. Biblical text uh, speaks, with, uh, speaks about turning a city into a mound or into a ruin or into a de- of devastation. That's what it's talking about. Okay? It's just turning it into a mound. Here are a few more examples. There's Tel Dotan uh, up in the northern, uh, near the Jordan Valley. Again, you can just see it's a big mound. Okay? Tel Megiddo, been excavated for almost 100 years continuously. Tell Azekah and the Shephelah, near where uh, David and the Battle of David and Goliath fought. So there you can, you can just see these hills, these mounds. Okay. Why is this significant? 
Well, do you know how when you're driving along the highway and you go through um, some place where they blasted out a hillside or a mountain or whatever, and you look and you can see these stone walls and you can see all these layers, right? You can see all the colors of the, of the stone walls. It's called stratigraphy. That exact same principle operates with these ancient tells, okay? So what you're looking at uh, here at Tel Azekah is... Uh, is, a, is an accumulation of cities piled one upon another, upon another, upon another, upon another, okay? So down at the lowest part, you have typically the oldest occupation. At some point, for whatever reason, it's abandoned or it's destroyed or whatever. Maybe it sits uninhabited for a little while. And then people come back and they say, hey, you know what? That's actually a pretty good place for a city. We should rebuild it. And so they level off the old city. They fill in any kind of bumps and, and holes and whatnot with sand or dirt or pottery or whatever else they can find. And then they build a new city right on top of it. Okay? And that cycle continues um, sometimes for 20 or 30 uh, settlements kind of stacked one on top of the other. The city that I excavated at, at Ashkelon, we had um, 20 phases in just one excavation area. So 20, 20 superimposed uh, uh, periods of occupation stacked one on top of the other. And you can imagine how for an archaeologist, that's all kinds of fun because it basically turns archaeology into a giant puzzle, right? You're always trying to figure out, well, what, goal, what wall goes with some other wall? And what is the date of this pottery and this floor? And how does it go with this wall? It's just a giant puzzle. You're always trying to peel these, um, these tells off from the top, work down to the earlier layers and you're always trying to make sure that you understand how everything relates to everything else so that you can understand what walls and floors and everything else are part of the same period of occupation. Does that make sense? But it's also very, very challenging, right? Because sometimes it's not always obvious which walls go with which floors and which walls and which buildings go with other buildings and all these kinds of things. Which means uh, that archaeology is sometimes more of an art than a science. Uh, one of the things that I really would like to underscore to you uh, is that there's archaeological data, but then there's also archaeological interpretation, okay? Basically, all the archaeologists are working with the same data, okay? They publish it. We're all reading the same books. We have this access to the same reports and all these other kinds of things. But two archaeologists might see the same data in different ways, right? They might interpret it in different ways, okay? And that's a, that's a live issue in the field of archaeology, just as it is in so many other fields, right? Okay. What do you see here? stack of rocks. <laughs> yeah, you see some pillars here. Uh, four courses of pretty large stones. See a wall here. Another wall here. A wall here with four pillars on top of it. Just barely catching the side of the wall coming through here. So you have maybe a room here, a room here, and a wall over here. So you have a room over here. You're looking at a house. Believe it or not. You're looking at what's called the, four, the pillared house or sometimes the four-room house. This is the basic house structure of an ancient Israelite person. Okay? This basic, and I'll show you a more, an artist's rendering of what this would have looked like in just a second. But this was the, the ubiquitous um, model for a house throughout the Israelite period. So from the, around 1200 B.C., all the way down uh, into the 6th century BC. This is basically how people built their houses. Now, they looked a little bit different depending on where the house was being built and what kinds of resources were available, right? You'll see that this house has these uh, lovely stone pillars. Well, that's because they had stones that they could use. If you live on the beach, like at Ashkelon, stones are hard to come by, right? You got a lot of sand, and the best stones you have are these like really 
crumbly Kirkar stones, and so you tended to not use stone pillars so much as wooden ones, because you had more access to that. But what you're looking at is a house. Here's another one. You have a wall here, you got three pillars, a wall here, a wall over here, some uh, sort of courtyard here, some floor in here, another pillared house. This is from Hansor up in the north. Here's a house from Megiddo, two rows of pillars, okay? So you've got a room over here, with Why do you have pillars? What if, yeah, because you need to put a roof up there, right? Or maybe it holds a second floor, okay? Here's a pillared house from uh, Shikmona near Haifa uh, along the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, here's an artist's reconstruction, okay? Maybe this one's just a little bit easier to see. So you can see you have these pillars. This one uses wood. This is, of course, not ancient. This is a, a reconstruction of a museum. But here you've got these uh, four pillars, one, two, three, four, a stone wall back here that's been plastered over, and the pillars are sitting on this, uh, what we call a stone pillar base, and they're holding up the roof of the house. You can see a doorway down here in the front, uh, stone walls, except for back here you've got stone foundations with bricks on top of them, just like we very often do. We pour a cement foundation and we put bricks on top of them in the ancient world. They, they put down uh, stone foundations with mud bricks on top. You've got this central courtyard. Over here you have a storage room. Back here you have another clean room, perhaps for sleeping in the wintertime. And then over here you've got a workspace. Often you might put your animals in here, right? Your, your kid goats, or if you've got a baby calf or something that can't be outside in the wintertime because it just doesn't yet have the, the, the physical constitution to endure the wintertime, then you put it down here in the wintertime. And then you've got this flat roof. Okay, so it's often called a four-room house. Why? One, two, three, four rooms. Okay. It's a horrible name because we have four-room houses that have two rooms, and we have four-room houses that have six rooms, and seven rooms, and all these kinds of things. So a better name is probably the pillared house. Here's what it might look like from the inside. Okay, so again, you see these pillars propping up this, uh, this roof here with some timbers up here. You see this back room, room over here on the side for storage. And then you've got this central space where... Um, you might do a lot of your like kind of your, your daily chores like cooking or weaving or anything that might make a little bit more of a mess, right? You might you might do that there. You typically would want to keep a couple of your rooms a little bit cleaner in case you needed to sleep in them. But often, you need me to switch out. I'm just gonna put this on you because you're walking around a little bit. Oh man, I told you I wouldn't do that. You did. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you, sir. Um, here we see uh, a, a loom, right, where uh, um, folks, almost certainly women in the ancient world, and I'll talk about that in, uh, in just a minute, would have done weaving, right, making uh, fabrics and carpets and uh, uh, yarns and all these various kinds of things. You can see some of the vessels that they're, that they're using. These are cooking pots here, some bowls and flasks uh, for storing water. If you're a shepherd, you've got to take water out into the, in, out into the field with you through the day because... There's not a lot of water to get out there, so you can throw that over your shoulder. Here's a couple of others. A little jug that's back here. A large pithos for storing uh, water or grain or whatever you might need. Here's a basalt vessel. Uh, basalt's a, a very strong stone, so it was often used for grinding, milling flowers before you baked it, kneaded it, and so forth. Here's another large storage vessel for storing um, water or oil or wine, just depending on what you were doing in that particular context. Here's another uh, artist's rendering of what this might have looked like. So again, you can see these pillars okay, holding up the second floor. Uh, 
and you've got a four-room house. One, two, three, four. This house has a second story, perhaps a sleeping quarters, or this woman is doing some weaving up here. And then you've got this man on the roof, rolling the roof. Why would you roll the roof? Say that again? Because it's made out of mud, right? You want to keep it clean, you want to keep it compact, otherwise it'll decay. Also because when the weather's nice, that's where you sleep. Okay, you sleep on the roof. Uh, I think in this context of, uh, uh, like, Peter, in, uh, in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius sends to get Peter, uh, Peter's praying on the roof, right? He's, he, they find him praying on the roof. That was kind of where you hung out oftentimes when the weather was nice. Notice these folks have livestock raising in the bottom room of their house. Okay? That seems totally foreign to us. I can't get my head around having a dog in the house. Right? These folks have cows and donkeys in the house. Forgive me if that's... A, I love dogs, but it's, just, it's become increasingly... Like, we have these animals that live in our houses. Why do we do? Um, <laughs> and these folks have livestock living in their houses, right? Okay. Here's a little community. Notice that you have all kinds of little houses. There's not, especially in the early age, this would be, say, the Iron Age 1, right, 1200 down to 1000 BC or so. We have these little hamlets kind of peppering throughout the central highland country, that black, or that brown spine that I mentioned to you at the beginning uh, up in the, in, the, in, the, in the hill country. You notice there's not a lot of city planning, except in one way. What do you notice about how the houses are arranged? Particularly with, they're arranged in a, in a bit of a circle. And what connects them? The person who's in charge of the bill. Yeah, okay, so there's, presumably you would think this might be like the father, the, the, the patriarch's house or something, right? Yeah. They all face inward from a wall. Yeah, and they all face inward from a sort of protective, defensive wall. Okay? I want you to come back to this in the discussion time. I've asked you a question about this, so I'm going to just put... Just leave that on, on the table for now. But do just notice the way that many of these houses back up into the perimeter of the city, and there's this like defensive wall that connects them. Okay? This is a way of, uh, well, it's got all kinds of benefits, right? The most obvious of one is it provides a little bit of, uh, of protection from intruders. Okay? It also allows you to have your goats out here, you know, or your chickens. Well, they're probably not chickens at this point. They're not domesticated yet. Uh, your kids, you know, running around with some measure of security. So it just provides a little, a little bit of security and defense. Uh, somebody mentioned the, the, the house here in the middle, and I propose that this is uh, probably the father's house. Um, in the ancient world, almost everything revolved around one's connection to a father figure. Okay? So uh, this happens at three basic levels. Okay? Everybody's... Um, Human affiliation is through the family. The family in the ancient world, especially in ancient Israel, was the key fundamental building block of the society. So much so that one of the key words or key terms for a family was the Beit Av. Anybody know what that means? The Beit Av. Anybody, anybody you had Hebrew? The house of the father. Okay. So presumably this is potentially the father's house, right? Literally. But all of this would presumably have been like one extended family that were kind of connected in one way or another to the family patriarch, to the off, right? To the father. So this would basically be 
collectively like a bait of, right? A household, and that bait can mean either house, like physically, or more like the abstract concept of like a household. This would presumably be the household of a, partic- a particular um, patriarch, okay? Who may or may not be very old, right? Life expectancy in the ancient world was like maybe 40, 45, so, so the patriarch could be my age, I'm 37, right? Uh, in other cases, you know, people lived 70, 80, 90 years sometimes, and so the patriarch could be, could be quite old. But the family is the basic building block of society. So much so that even when kings uh, set up a dynasty, do you know what they called them? The house, right? You read about this in the, in the Bible. The house of David, the house of Ahab, or the house of Omri, and so forth. So that the, the king becomes this sort of like father figure for the whole nation. Okay? In fact, we have a text. I don't have an image of it for you here. But it's from the 9th century uh, that they, they found at the city of Dan called the Tel Dan inscription that mentions it's the earliest reference we have to David outside the Bible. I'm, I'm totally convinced that many of our texts, especially in Samuel, that describe David really only makes sense uh, having been composed very early on, like in the 10th century. So I think the book of Samuel is the earliest reference to the book of David dating already to the 10th century. A lot of scholars would laugh at me about that, but I think they're wrong. Um, but this, we have about 100 years later, we have this inscription called the Tel Dan inscription, and it makes clear re- reference to the Beit David, to the house of David, okay? which is a reference to the Davidic dynasty ruling over Judah. Okay? So even po- politics get co-opted into this familial kind of language. And then, of course, so also does theology. You know what the uh, primary name of, uh, of God's temple in the Old Testament is? It's his house, right? The temple is very often referred to as God's bayat, his house. Well, there are other words for for temple, heichal, and so forth. It's not the only word. But typically, the temple is referred to as as the divine abode. It's the house of God. What does that suggest? It suggests that God is understood as a sort of father figure. Uh, If you read texts like Psalm 2, right, uh, the, the psalmist very clearly, possibly David himself, uh, alludes to God as his father. Okay? Uh, and so it's the father of the nation referring to the father of the world. Does this make sense? So that family kind of identity is totally central to the ancient mindset. Uh, here you have a, a, a painting. Uh, it's from this book that's very, very helpful, Life in Book of Israel, written by uh, Philip King and Larry Stanger. It's a little old now, but uh, this um, image is just super, super helpful for helping us uh, grasp what daily life in ancient Israel would have entailed. What are some of the things you see here? You see a four, two four-room houses connected by a wall, right? We've already discussed that. What else do you see? Yeah. Talk about right here? You see some vines, right, where they're growing grapes for wine or food. People doing stuff outside. Down here you have a group of women, this little baby, playing on a mat. You've got, uh, this woman uh, seems to be making something like flatbread on a griddle. Uh, this lady is grinding grain, pushing it in a, in a flat uh, stone with a uh, sort of a round handle. I'll show you a picture of that here in a second. This lady is grinding uh, grain in a, with a mortar and pestle. Some of you to this day might have mortars and pestles in your kitchen. Uh, they're abundant in the ancient world. we got a little boy back here chasing a dog. Things haven't changed all that much. Uh, what do we have here? An oven. Okay, we have what's called a, a, a taboon or a tanur. Uh, an oven. Uh, wood, uh, wood and straw for the oven. This lady's uh, throwing bread in the oven. 
are on the roofs, right? They're sleeping under the stars. Uh, an awareness of that might give some context to texts like the book of Job, right? Where in the end of the book of Job, um, God is asking Job these uh, big questions, like, were you there when, and one of the things that God asks is like, were you there when I, when I planted the Pleiades in the sky, right? He's talking about constellations. That would have just been part of daily life. As they lay there in the middle of the night and they wake up at two in the morning, maybe there's a goat, you know, making noise in the bottom or whatever. And they look up and they see these bright stars in the middle of the night. It just would have been part of the fabric of daily life, okay? In ways that we can't really even contemplate because we have so much light pollution and all the rest. They're sleeping under the stars as long as the light is good. Other things that you notice is uh, this guy's shoveling out stalls, right? There's probably uh, livestock that sleep in here at night, so he's shoveling out stalls. Uh, this fellow is uh, repairing plaster on the side of his house, so there's a, probably a stone foundation and bricks and plaster. You can see these uh, beams sticking through, they're separating off floors, so this is a two-story house. Uh, so is this one over here? I guess this is probably an olive tree. Um, this is just part and parcel of daily life. Okay. You see some lambs here. Presumably they're you know, being taken out to graze by this young man. He's a shepherd. He's got his dog with him. Okay. Uh, the whole notion of a sheep dog is quite ancient. Um, so he's going to go out and spend his day out in the uh, in the pasture lands grazing the flock. This fellow is watering uh, a cow. Perhaps he's been out uh, plowing in the fields. Usually you plow behind two, two oxen, one if that's all you could afford. Okay? Just an image of activities in daily life. So just notice the things that we've seen. Some agricultural things, food preparation, animal husbandry. They've got sheep, goats, and oxen. Some guys just doing work on the house, architectural repair. Okay, we're still doing that to this day. Uh, ladies busy with weaving and textile production. Uh, religious devotion. I didn't notice that. Here we've got uh, some pots. This would have been the place that you did a lot of your praying on the roof of the house. Okay? You might have a little incense altar up here where you would burn incense to God and those sort of things. Talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, and the last thing, we don't see this so much in this picture, uh, but I would like uh, to conclude my talk today by just saying a few things about defense and weaponry. I'll start with agriculture. What you're looking at here is a text discovered in 1908 in an archaeological dump, which is very unfortunate because it means that it was discovered having already been removed from its primary context, and, and so we don't exactly know where it would have been found. It was basically just found in a pile of dirt. Okay? Um, it's called the Gezer Calendar. Uh, it dates to roughly the 10th century BC, uh, probably closer to the late 10th century, maybe around 900, 920 BC. What, do we, what is it? It's a 12-month agricultural calendar. Okay. Um, it begins in the fall with the olive harvest. Even to this day, olives tend to be harvested in the fall in, uh, in Israel, in the Middle East. Uh, and Jewish tradition also to this day continues to have the celebration of the new year in the fall. Rosh Hashanah tends to fall in September, okay, start of the year. Uh, note that it tells time by agricultural seasons. Okay. It's not January, February, March, April, and so forth. You tell time by where we are in the agricultural process, the, the annual agricultural process. It speaks to an agrarian way of life. Okay? It tells us that, um, that life in ancient Israel was just utterly tied, indelibly tied to the land. Okay? They're farmers. 
by and large, all, almost all of them are farmers. They're raising, they're raising their own crops, raising their own cattle, and they're living off of the land. Okay? And, this, and this calendar speaks to that. Here's just an image of what that might look like. Here's uh, an image of, of the grain harvest uh, near Tel Dotan. Uh, when I look at this picture, I think of the book of Ruth, right? This is something like what Ruth and Naomi would have seen when they, when they get back uh, from Bethlehem. Which, by the way, while I'm on the topic of Ruth, you know what's iron, ironic about the book of Ruth? It starts off a famine in the city of Bethlehem. In the city of Bethlehem, the name means Bethlehem, house of bread, right? So there's a famine in a house of bread. They go to Moab, come back. This is what they would have seen. Uh, another major crop, uh, as you know, I'm sure, is olives. Uh, here you see some olive trees in the, in the back. There's these beautiful trees. They kind of have this silvery green tint to them. Uh, I've never seen them growing here, maybe in California, but, it, but in Israel and, and uh, throughout the Mediterranean world, they're totally ubiquitous. I also want to note this terracing. Remember how I told you that uh, the Israelites lived in the hill country? Well, in order to find land or to create land that could be farmed, very often they would have to level stuff off. And so they would build, these, build up these terrace walls so that they could then level things out and plant trees or grains or what have you. And to this day, if you go to the, to the central highlands of Israel, you can see terracing there that is very, very ancient. People have been living in that part of the world forever, right? And they've always known that if they're going to make good use of that land, they have to find ways to level it off a little bit. Okay, so terracing. This is a fun picture. What you're looking at here is a, a series of iron plows and, uh, and iron tools. Okay? You've got, uh, these are from Ekron, the city of Ekron, a Philistine city. Uh, they date to the 7th century BC. Um, we see two uh, two-pronged plows. Uh, here's one here, and here's another one here. Here's a one-pronged plow. You can see how you would have put a wooden beam through here, run that beam up to a yoke of oxen, and then just ridden behind it to plow your fields. We also see um, a sickle blade here, a knife, still with rivets in it. Okay, there presumably would have been a bone or a wooden handle to make that a little bit uh, easier to use. Tools like this would have just been part of um, the fabric of daily life, things that in many ways your life depended upon. Uh, in the rocky soil around ancient Israel and Judah, a good plow was essential, right? You didn't need to get deep into the soil because it's... Um, you really just needed to break it up enough, move some of the stones out of the way. So what they would do is they would plow in one direction, plant their seeds, and then plow perpendicular to the way that they had plowed previously to cover their seeds over, and then they would start to grow. Uh, and then they would pray for rain. Here's a, a, an image of winnowing uh, grains. What do you see here? You see some uh, grains in bundle back here. Again, you might think of Ruth, right? Uh, you see here, what looks to me like a couple of teenage boys going for a hayride, right? Um, I work with teenagers, so this is very easy for me to envision. These guys have a good time. Tom Fool around back here. But notice that uh, the, the oxen yoked together. Uh, this uh, uh, sledge uh, tied to the, off to the yoke with a rope. And they're sitting on the sledge to give it weight. What are they doing here? They're trying to separate the heads of the grain from the, from the straw, okay? So they've got this big pile of probably straw here that they're, or, or a fresh grain, and they're just working their way around it, trying to separate those things apart. And over here, you've got four men with their pitchforks throwing the fresh grain up in the air, hoping the wind will catch it, and the wind will drive the chaff away, but the seed being heavier, the grain being heavier, is going to fall back to the earth. Does that remind you of anything? Psalm 1, right? The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Well, that really only makes sense if you have some understanding of how this process worked. Okay? These guys are 
are throwing the, the grain up in the air so that the wind will catch the straw, drive it away, and the seed will fall back to the ground and they can bundle it up, take it home, and grind it and bake with it or what have you. This process is still in use among some Palestinians today, right? This very old school process. What you see here is a threshing sledge. Uh, so this is the bottom side of it, okay? Notice that it's got all these teeth in it. There are these holes drilled in it, and there are these basalt stones that stick out of it. And this is essential for threshing the grain because, again, you're trying to cut the heads of the grain off of the wheat. Okay, so you want some teeth in that sledge as you run it over the grains. Um, here's an interesting connection to, to the Bible. Isaiah 41, uh, 15. So this is, uh, this is the prophet talking to the exilic community uh, and giving them some hope when they find themselves in exile. The prophet says, I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, will make of you, Israel, a threshing sledge. Sharp, new, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. Okay? So this is, this is uh, the, the God of Israel promising Israel to make Israel something like that threshing sledge, to give them teeth so that they can uh, have hope that they will someday thresh the nations. Uh, water, essential for daily life, right? but not easy to come by in the ancient world. So what do they do? They dug giant holes in the ground. Okay, this is a cistern. Uh, um, well, this, is, this actually here, I'm sorry, forgive me. This is a, a, a silo uh, where they would have stored grain. You can see it seems to be set so you get down inside it. It's the eighth century uh, at Megiddo. So squarely in the Israelite occupation here. Uh, oops, too fast. I mentioned grinding. Might be uh, useful for grinding like uh, olives or something, or for grinding uh, fruits and so forth, a mortar and pestle, another uh, sort of grindstone here, you can see this, this sort of curvature in it, and then the, the person on the top has a stone that they run over the top of it, these kinds of things are all over the place, here's the remains of an oven, okay, not at all unlike the technology that you would see in a brick oven today, okay. these bricks, uh, there probably would have been some sort of a stone uh, base at the bottom of it, and uh, and then a hole at the top where you would uh, put bread in from the, from the top and bake it up, uh, get nice and hot in there. Bake yourself a nice sourdough. There's an olive tree from the Garden of Gethsemane. These trees can live for 1,500 years. Um, the oldest ones on record are as, are as much as 2,000 years, but it's very unlikely that in the Garden of Gethsemane today there are olive trees that Jesus would have seen because uh, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, the historian Josephus tells us that they burnt all of the trees off of the Mount of Olives. Uh, so it's unlikely that any of those trees that Jesus would have seen have, have survived. But this one is estimated to be about 1,500 years old. Uh, it's commonly said, perhaps you've heard this before, but if you plant an olive tree, you don't plant it for yourself or even for your kids. You plant it for your grandkids. Right? It just takes a very, a very, very long time to bear fruit. Olive production in the ancient world. Here you see uh, an olive press. So in the fall, you would uh, get the olives, you shake them off the tree, and you hit them with a stick, and they fall down, and you pick them up, and you take them to a press. You want to get the oil out of them. Uh, this was uh, essential to the economy of ancient Israel. I'll say a little bit more about that on the next slide. But you take it to the press, and the first thing you want to do is you want to get what they call the virgin olive oil. We still see that on our olive oil bottles today, right? What is the virgin olive oil? It's the oil that comes out of the very first pressing of the olives. They can be pressed a second or third time, but the more you press them, the more pulp you start to get in it. Okay? So the virgin olive oil is the pulp-free. Is that what we call it? Pulp-less, pulp-free uh, uh, oil. And here you see a, 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 I guess we could call it a basin. And then you see this large stone on this hole. 
and you would put these olives in this basin, and then you just would have run the, the stone over the top of the olives to press out the, uh, the oil from them. And then you could add hot water into that mixture. Water and oil don't mix, right? As we know from oil spills and all the rest, okay? And so then you could just skim off the virgin olive oil from the top of that uh, hot water and oil mixture. Okay? And that's how you get your virgin olive oil. Um, here what you're looking at is, um, is how you would have gotten then the second and third, um, I don't know what we would even call it, presses out of the olives. Okay? You have this large beam weighted down by these stones. Then you've got this basin here with all of these baskets, these wicker baskets or straw baskets stacked one on top of the other. So after you press the olives the first time, you put what remains uh, in these baskets, stick a stone on top of them, and then press them as hard as you could with this weighted beam. Okay. The way you see here, you see that there's this like this like little channel here. Okay. So the oil is going to drip down through those straw baskets, go into the channel, and then come out right here. You can see there's a little hole dug right here where you can stick a jar down in there and you can collect the oil as it sort of oozes down from the, from the press. Okay? Uh, at the city of Ekron, um, which I mentioned a little while ago, a Philistine city, in the 7th century, there, they have discovered more than 100 olive oil presses at that city dating to the end of the 7th century. More than 100. Uh, it is, uh, it's almost certain that that city would have been the um, olive oil production capital of the ancient world. Okay? They're producing way more olive oil there than that city or even the land of Israel could possibly use. And so they're producing it for foreign export primarily to ancient Egypt, but also to a lesser degree to, uh, to, um, to Babylon. Okay? So they're sending it all over the ancient world uh, as part of this uh, great um, uh, 7th century Mediterranean economy. And I'm going to say more about that in my next talk. Okay, well, you get all this stuff, you get grain, you get olive oil. What are you going to do with it? Well, you've got to store it. Okay, well, here's some of what you put it in. I mentioned a little while ago, pithos is large uh, storage jars. And these things are about as tall as I am. They probably come up to like here. I mean, they're just really, really massive. Uh, here's, you've got another storage jar, large craters, a little juglet down here. These are the kinds of things you put olive oil or wine or water or grain, just whatever you needed. Put it in there. I mentioned textiles and weaving shows up frequently in the Bible. One thinks of the, the end of the book of Proverbs where the, the lady wisdom puts her hand to the distaff and she produces all kinds of linens and scarlet uh, 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 fabrics for her household. Um, here's what that would have looked like in the ancient world. We have these women and they're working here at a loom. It's a, a scene from, uh, from ancient Egypt. Here's some ladies over here producing yarn with a spindle and whorl. Okay. So they've got a bundle of cotton or flax or what have you, and they're uh, strung through this bowl and held up here, and they're spinning it at the bottom to produce threads. Okay. <clears throat> we can also get a sense of what people would have worn in the ancient, uh, uh, ancient world. Here we have some uh, people from the city of Lachish, Judahites. I'm going to talk more about this hopefully at the end of the talk. But you can see what they're wearing. These people from Lachish, they're wearing these kind of almost like kilts, the men are, these skirts that kind of go around the waist. Um, can't see them very well in the picture, but they've got uh, sandals on their feet often. It's like a, um, a person who's crawling before the king to plead for his life. I'll say more about that uh, in a little bit. Here's more of uh, what they're wearing. Here's uh, uh, a series, right, who are wearing these pointed helmets and these kind of like cloaks and so forth. Um, here's another series dressed uh, uh, 
some, like some greens on his shins and a cloak over here. Pointed helmet. Jewelry. These are signet rings. Uh, you might think of like uh, when, um, when Judah goes and visits Tamar and he gives her his signet ring as like kind of uh, an identifier. Something like this is what he would have given to her. Amulets and jewelry, these would be necklaces that you would wear, like pendants that you would wear around your, your neck. And uh, these are called um, scarabs, which are uh, sort of identifying, ways of identifying who you work for and so forth. These have hieroglyphics on them. These are the kinds of things that archaeologists uh, uncover uh, very, very often. Okay, last thing I want to talk about uh, this morning is defense and weaponry. And then I'd like to try to apply this uh, to, um, to a particular text. Um, archaeologists commonly, whoops, I got three L's in there, forgive me. Can't do that in English. Ballistics, like sling stones, uh, arrowheads, spear points, chariots. Here you're looking at a tablet from the second millennium uh, that shows uh, a guy on his chariot. Okay. You see a wheel down here, this uh, sort of holding on to it up here. Got four spokes. Uh, early chariots in the second millennium tended to have four spokes, the later ones had six. Here's King Ramses III of Egypt. We'll talk about him a little bit later in the second period, or in the, in the third session later today. Uh, he's got a, a bow and arrow standing in his uh, uh, chariot. He's not even uh, holding on to it. Notice he's just got the reins wrapped around his waist. Okay. I think that's probably a boast. He's like, look, look how epic and great of a warrior I am. I don't even have to hold this thing. Like, look, mom, no hands. Um, he's got a six-spoked uh, chariot here. He's got all his, uh, his guys behind him. Also with... Uh, this guy's got a quiver back here, and so does this one. They've got bows and arrows. Uh, these are the kinds of, uh, of weapons that would have been typical in the ancient world. Here's an Assyrian king riding a chariot behind his horse, holding a bow and arrow, trampling over his enemies. Okay. Uh, he's got some people trying to fight against him, but not going so well. So a bombastic depiction of his power. This is called the, My uh, the Mycenaean warrior vase. It dates to the late Bronze Age, probably 1400 or so BC. Uh, and they're wearing um, armor that's very similar to what Goliath wears. Okay, they've got greaves on their shins, they've got a helmet, they've got um, like a, like a shield or a breastplate, this long spear that they carry. Okay. Um, uh, some weapons that were found at the site of Telekish, iron weapons. So there's a... Uh, a uh, uh, a lance head up here, another spear point down here. You can even see where the, where the shaft would have gone into it and been secured uh, down there at the, at the end. Arrowheads from the city of Lachish. A sling from the tomb of, Ting, of King Tut. There's some Assyrians wielding a sling against the city of Lachish. One thinks of David against Goliath here. You would think uh, that the... Um, that a sling would be not a very effective weapon. On the contrary, uh, some of those shepherds and warriors could get remarkably accurate with a sling and a stone, and they could hurl those rocks at uh, really, really impressive speeds. Um, it's not to say that David wasn't an underdog. He was, but if he knew what he was doing, he, he actually had the best weapon that he could possibly have to take on a, a slow and lumbersome, like, clumsy giant like Goliath. He was very nimble, and he could just get a good shot and, and finish him off. Here's some sling stones, just some, some um, smooth, round stone balls. Okay. Um, 
I've mentioned some of the ways in which, uh, let's just say Psalm 126, not 26, but some places in which uh, some knowledge of the ancient world helps the text um, kind of come off the page a little bit. I mentioned Psalm 1 to you and the way in which uh, this knowledge of how wheat and chaff are separated helps us to understand the plight of the wicked. Uh, this should be Psalm 126, where it uh, has this conversation about, um, about um, going out and, and sowing grain and, and gathering up uh, grain at the harvest and how that brings about joy. Uh, Ehud uh, is a story of, I don't have time at the moment, I'm like, it's, it's 10 o'clock now, but Ehud is this great story about the judge that goes over to Moab and slays the king of Moab, Eglon, with a dagger uh, when he's uh, in, on the roof of his house and in, in, in his uh, Seems like he's going to the bathroom or something. How could archaeology speak to that and kind of help bring that text to life? I mentioned Ruth. I'd like, if I could, just take a couple minutes as I wrap up this session to talk about how archaeology sheds light on um, one particular chapter, 2 Kings 18. Okay, 2 Kings 18. You don't necessarily need to turn there, but 2 Kings 18, very briefly, uh, describes the, um, the Assyrian campaign of Judah in 701 BC. Uh, the Assyrians were led at that time by a king named Sennacherib. Looks like Sennacherib if you pronounce it uh, phonetically, but it's, it's pronounced Sennacherib. Uh, what you're looking at here is what's called uh, the prism of Sennacherib, or Sennacherib's prism. Dates to right around 700 BC, shortly after the events that it describes. And he claims in his prism to have caged Jeremiah, uh, caged uh, Hezekiah up like a like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem. And he says that he put up so much pressure on Jerusalem that he caged that he pinned up Jeremiah like a bird in a cage. Here's a siege ramp from Tel Lachish that the Assyrians built when they uh, wanted to conquer this city at the end of the 8th century in 701 BC. You can still see their siege ramp. So they set up their armies all around this city, uh, and they camped out around it for several months, and eventually they just piled up all of this mud and anything they could find to build up a siege ramp so that they could get to the top of the tell with relatively minimal effort, right? Otherwise, they had to go up this kind of very steep tell. Well, we actually have um, reliefs from King Sennacherib's palace uh, in Nineveh, that show this very thing, this very battle. And I just wanted to, sh to uh, show you the ways in which like some knowledge of culture and, and history, uh, as I've tried to point out uh, in this session, can actually like really shed light on the text. So here we see um, some Assyrian soldiers going up this ramp, right? It's a depiction of the siege ramp that you can still see at Lachish to this day, okay? There it is, they're going up, and they've got their spears and their uh, shields, and they're both there, they're trying to launch both uh, flaming arrows probably over the city wall of Lachish. There they are going up the siege ramp that they had built. Okay. Here they are attacking the tower of Lachish. They haven't all mastered perspective yet. They've got to wait to the Renaissance for that. This is all very, very much a two-dimensional kind of uh, mode. But you can see the Assyrians working their way up the siege ramp. Here's some, some folks in the city of Judah have been impaled on a pole by the Assyrians. Uh, bows and arrows, the tower, all the rest. Uh, these look like ballistics that they're launching over the top of these, uh, these um, ramps, some ladders, trying to get up to the top of the city. Slingers, I mentioned a little while ago, the, 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 uh, the, the, the Assyrian slingers. Chariot, up here with a cart at any rate. This is the fate of the Judahites in this, uh, in this particular campaign. Right? The leaders of the city are being stretched out almost as if they're being quartered. 
at the Assyrians are just basically torturing them. Um, here's some little boys being carted off with their, with their father, presumably. So warriors up here have their soldiers, probably a family being carted off to exile in, in uh, Assyria. Here's a, an Assyrian general or leader uh, coming before King Sennacherib and presenting the tribute that's been gained from the, from the, the campaign. And then here we have all of these arrowheads, I've already shown these to you, from this exact destruction layer at Lachish. Okay. So we have a biblical record of the event, and we have the archaeological record of the event and these arrowheads and, and sling stones and the spear point. We have the, uh, the textual record and the, and the uh, iconographic record and the reliefs that I've just shown you. Uh, and we know exactly how this war went down. And because we know something about how ancient armies fought and what kinds of weapons they used and all these different kinds of things, we can use that information to help this story kind of come to life in a way that we could really envision quite vividly. Does that make sense? Okay. As a way of concluding, I'd just like to propose, how does this make any difference when it comes to reading the biblical text? Like, what difference does it make for, for you? Well, you know the story of Jonah, right? I don't have time to recount it all to you, but uh, God commands that Jonah go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians, and proclaim the word of God to them. And Jonah doesn't want to go. In fact, he goes as far in the opposite direction as he can possibly get, namely to Tarshish, which is probably a a city in modern-day Spain. He's supposed to go east, and he goes as far west as he can possibly run. It'd be like if God commanded me to go to Manhattan, which I confess I wouldn't really want to do, right? And I took off for L.A., which I also wouldn't really want to do. I'm pretty happy in West Virginia, okay? Right? What this story, what this knowledge of archaeology and history and sort of cultural um, material enables us to do is it helps us to see that Jonah had his reasons, right? When God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh and he refused, yeah, he was sinful and petulant and disobedient. We can all acknowledge that. But it wasn't just because he felt like staying home. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated those people, right? He hated what they had done to his friends in Lachish, okay? Uh, he had seen his friends be flayed and be led off to exile with fish hooks through their mouths. I didn't show you that picture, but, but I could. Okay? Uh, and so Jonah had his reasons. The Assyrians were just heinous offenders. They're just horribly vicious warriors. And yet, on the other hand, that story of Jonah, in light of all of this, I think shows us something very profound about the depth of God's mercy. Right? Even the Assyrians, even the Assyrians are on his radar, and he wants to call them to repentance. What have we done today uh, so far? What I'd like you to leave this session with, and, and really all of the sessions, is that archaeology is at its best when we keep it in its proper place and when we look to it to shed light on life and customs in the ancient world. How did people eat? How did they build their houses? How did they sleep? What did they wear? How did they go about daily life? How did they uh, create a subsistence? How did they fight their wars? These kinds of things. But, as we've seen, this information helps us to see that the biblical stories are being are, are, um, are situated in real space and time. I, uh, I'm sure this isn't true of you, probably, but I, I sometimes get the sense with my students that when they read the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, they, see that they, they think of it as, as if it's like, like Narnia, you know? That, that, that it's, it happens in this kind of like fantasy world. It's like kind of once upon a time land. And I want you to see that that the biblical stories unfolded in real space and time, right? These stories actually took place in a place that you can go visit among real people in this same world that we occupy, among people that in many, many ways were not so different from us.
okay? Uh, so archaeology helps us to see that. It helps us to see that the biblical stories portray ancient reality. And then lastly, I, I hope that you can see that by reading ancient texts in their historical context, that often helps us to see things in these stories that we otherwise wouldn't see. The story of Jonah is an example. Perhaps uh, the, the metaphor with uh, winnowing chaff in Psalm 1 might be an example. Um, there are dozens of other examples that could be multiplied. I'm going to give you a chance to talk about those in your, in your Q&A time. Um, but I would just sum up by saying that archaeology can help us to see things that we wouldn't otherwise see, and that can be significant for interpretation and application of these texts.